Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Today we're beginning a new series uh, called The Human God. So um, what we like to do, and kind of another one of these annual rhythms that we have at City Beautiful is that we, uh, we slow down at the beginning of the year, we talk about our yearly vision, what we feel like the Lord is leading us to. So for this year, it's be strong and take heart. We slow down and, and consider personal vision. What, what is it that the Lord would have each of us explore alongside of him in this year? Um, and then we begin the first series of the year uh, centering on the Gospels, allowing one of the Gospel writers uh, to guide our journey, to help us to recenter on Jesus, to give primacy to Jesus as the Messiah, as the King, and then from there to begin to explore whatever the vision might be uh, for the year. And so um, this graphic, I like this graphic. Um, I like it on multiple levels. Um, I like it because Hunter made it, and I like Hunter. Um, she's really great at type. And I like this icon. Um, some of you know that I like icons. If you've ever been to my house and seen my office, it's a Byzantine temple. Um, this is called the Christ Pantocrator. What'd you say? Yeah, iconic. There we go. Um, this icon is called the Christ Pantocrator. Pantocrator, just kind of fancy word that means king of all. Um, and it's at a monastery uh, on Mount Sinai. And it's actually probably the oldest Byzantine icon dating back to about the 500s. And it's very unique. Um, most of you will be familiar with how icons work within especially the Orthodox or the Catholic traditions. And this one looks a little bit def- different. It's very painterly. Um, one of the things that you might notice about it when you really start to hone in is it doesn't seem, it's, it's a very awkward portrait of Jesus. So if you kind of look at like one half of his face to the other, they don't match. It looks like he's kind of got like a lazy eye or a bulgy eye or something, or he's like smirking, or one side of his face is a little bit emaciated, and one side he looks a little bit more full. And that was actually the intention of the original icon writers, is they wanted to create an image that captures uh, the fullness of who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. And so you see on the, kind of his left, our, our left, his left side of his face is kind of uh, radiated in glory. And there's a sense of perfection about it. One of the really interesting things about this image of Christ is <clears throat> that um, up to 500 uh, Uh, points of connection between this image and the Shroud of Turin, if you know what the Shroud of Turin is. Um, If you, like me, like watch like ancient aliens and such, you know about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, But it's rumored to be the cloth that was over Christ's face when he was buried. Um, And this could potentially be the most historically accurate picture we have of Christ. Um, But the left side is kind of almost angelic, or there's a sense of perfection uh, to the picture, while on the right side, we see a Jesus who is a little bit more in the shadow, um, maybe some of that language that we would use in the Old Testament about being a man of sorrows, well acquainted with suffering. And that was the intention of um, whomever like, kind of painted this first image of this icon. And so it feels really appropriate for us in this series um, that we're doing called The Human God, that we're looking at this, this image of Christ who is fully God 
and fully man. And we're going to do that by going through the Gospel of Mark. So we like to rotate through um, the different Gospels we're using. This year, we're going to be using uh, the Gospel of Mark. So Mark is, uh, by most experts' uh, opinion, uh, the original Gospel. Tradition holds um, that Mark... Uh, wrote down what Peter dictated to him. So Peter, the disciple, uh, at the end of his life, perhaps, is recounting to Mark the story of Jesus. Um, It's also considered that Mark is probably the source text for the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. So that Matthew and Luke, they're reading Mark's text, or really Peter's story via Mark. There's something else called the Q document that we think exists, but we don't know where it is or what it looks like. Um, and Matthew and Luke are kind of combining those with some things that, that uh, in Matthew's case, he remembers, or Luke uh, begins his gospel talking about how much research he did to kind of put together his vision of the story. Um, and then later, John would write his gospel uh, not as a way to um, add on to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We call them the sin-optic gospels, sin being same, optic being eyeball, so they look the same. John is very different. John is 90% unique. But the idea being that John looks, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he says, well, we don't really need to retell that story. Let me add in some of the flavor that we're not uh, necessarily getting. That's a very kind of theological retelling of the story. Um, So that's kind of the background uh, to Mark. And I got this sense a couple months ago the Lord wanted us to go here. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I'm allowed to say this as a pastor, but we like honesty here. Just don't tell anybody. I'm not a fan of Mark. I know. I know. I know, I will show myself out. Um, But we love authenticity at this church. You know, we can say things like that. We can use the lower tier cuss words in sermons, that kind of thing. Um, Here's here's my beef with Mark. Um, From my very first job, my first non-real job was painting horse fences. That's what happens when you grow up in Virginia. But my first real job was working at a movie theater. Anybody else in here work at a movie theater? All right, did you have... Um, a, like a waistcoat and a tie. Oh, I had to do that. Oof, horrid. But I worked um, in the movie theater in a very pivotal era called 1999 to 2002. Um, There's very big deals in film. So, yeah, Y2K. We had uh, we had the Matrix. We had uh, the re-release of the Star Wars original trilogies, and then we had episodes one, two, and three come out. But the biggest uh, the biggest move in theater in that time was Lord of the Rings. Uh, Caitlin, how long has it been since I've made a Lord of the Rings reference in a sermon? It's been, it's been a while. Okay, so that's where we're going. So I saw the movie a lot. You work at a movie theater, you go to the movies for free. And I saw the last five minutes of every movie three times a day that I memorized it, and I memorized the Annie Lennox song that's like the outro credits, you know, and one of the, whatever. And they're, f- they're phenomenal films. As a fan of the books, they did a very, very, very good job. They still hold up. They're absolutely wonderful. If you haven't seen them, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> so the theatrical release is amazing. And then they released L-O-T-R-E-E, which is the Lord of the Rings Extended Edition. Anybody else have those? Is it just me? Okay, Johnny's got them. Okay, you guys have got them. So as if the original movies weren't long enough, they added more content. And so uh, Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring is now 3 hours and 15 minutes. Two Towers is now 3.30. And I believe that Return of the King is now 3.45. So if you're ever doing an all-day marathon, which I have done several times, it's about 11 hours of footage. 
Um, and so it's phenomenal, the extended edition. But what happens is once you see the extended edition and you have an opportunity to see the theatrical, you're like, eh, why? This is now the definitive vision of the Lord of the Rings. Like, this is, I'm not going to waste my time with a the theatrical vision. All that to say, that's how I feel about Mark. <laughs> it, like, we got there. You had to, we went on a journey and we came back. Um, Matthew and Luke, especially Matthew, I love the Gospel of Matthew. That feels like Lord of the Rings extended edition that has the extra DVDs in there of the making of. So you can see them like making the masks and talking to, to Mary and Pippin and getting their experiences in it. And knowing that Viggo Mortensen broke his toe in the frustration of the two towers when he kicks uh, the orc uh, helmet out of the way. All important things to know. Um, Mark feels redundant. So, we're on a journey together where I, I already feel it now, but like, I think the Lord's going to redeem for a lot of us, probably mostly for me, the gospel of Mark. Um, and this is what we're really going to be focusing in on in this series. If we want to know what God is really like, we watch Jesus move through the world. We listen to what Jesus has to say. And this is kind of central to our community. We believe that God looks like Jesus. We don't believe that Jesus is just a really great teacher, although he is. We don't believe that he was just some sort of political revolutionary, although he was. Um, We don't believe that Jesus uh, achieved a certain level of spiritual awesomeness um, in his life that is just there to inspire us to do the same. We believe that when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. Okay, that's what we believe. That is the bold claim of Christianity. And all the other, those other kinds of claims, I think they are intended to domesticate who Jesus really is and to lower our expectations to make it more palatable um, to the human narrative. But if we want to know what God is really like, we watch Jesus move through the world. So when Jesus does something, that's God doing it. It's not a version of God. It's not what God was like for a little while, and then God's going to change his mind and become something else later on, like Jesus is nice to us, but then God is kind of a jerk at the end of time. Like all of those kind of schizophrenic visions of God that we have, when we look at Jesus, that is what God looks like. And this is what I'm particularly interested to explore with the Gospel of Mark, with Mark um, that Mark focuses on the actions of Jesus. Um, this version of Jesus that we're going to see he doesn't talk as much as Matthew and Luke. There's not these like large discourses like the Sermon on the Mount or whatnot. This is a Jesus of action. In fact, the Greek word eothos is used 40 times, and it means kind of immediately or at once or quickly, that, that Mark is just moving the story along, really kind of giving us this like overarching vision of the work of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, to, to give us this narrative that says this is what God is actually like. So watch God work through the world. Watch God speak through Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about not just Mark, but Matthew and Luke is the synoptic gospels, is that the human who is also God, not the human who becomes God, not the human, or not the God that just looks like a human but isn't really human. The human who is also God is a steady revelation through the text itself. 
So alongside of all of the supporting cast of the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke, we come to recognize that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but God incarnate. And so we discover it alongside of him. So we're going to be today uh, reading the first half of Mark chapter 1. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into this. So Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here, that you are with us, that you are for us, you are not against us. And praise be to you that you are so consistent when we are inconsistent. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, even when we seek to paint portraits of you that make you look like you're schizophrenic or that you're at war within yourself. Lord, I pray in this, this series, as we allow Mark to, to unfold the story of Jesus, that we would fall in love with you even more than we are in this moment. That we would be wooed by the portrait of God we see in the face of Christ, in the actions of Christ, in the words of Christ. And I pray as we march towards Holy Week to Easter Sunday, that we would all experience something like being born again and again and again. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is Mark 1, 1 through 18. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. I hope you can already perceive in some way that this is the gospel of action. We're moving the story along. We're saying things that 
maybe especially for us, 2,000 years removed from the narrative, feel a little bit alien. And it's very easy for us to import a lot of our cultural narratives and filters um, onto a story like this because we've been set up by religious institutions to ask a certain kind of question of the gospel. So we get asked these kinds of questions, and it, and it often happens like this within our society, especially within the Western church. What do I have to do in order to go to heaven when I die? Okay, that's the question that has dominated um, the American evangelical Protestant church for 50 to 100 years. We are, we are raised to ask that question, and then we go, okay, let's go to the Bible, and let's find the answer to the question that we've been told is the most important question. And I think that's problematic. We need, if we're to, to, to try to remove as many lenses as possible that we have when it comes to understanding what we mean when we say the gospel, we have to allow the gospels to speak to themselves. In fact, there are debates within biblical scholarship of do the gospels actually preach the gospel? That they'll often say, well, Paul preached the gospel. Paul gave us the Roman road and told us we're sinners and we need uh, to, to pray this prayer and then we're going to be good. But then the gospels don't really seem to preach the gospel, which I find hilarious because they're called the Gospels. Um, because what we think gospel means is good advice or good recommendations or uh, good steps that you need to take in order to live a healthier, happier whole life. So I think for many of us, it's our parents that were concerned with the afterlife. Um, we're too smart to believe in the afterlife, so we just think, how do I live a better life today? And so Jesus is kind of like Tony Robbins uh, except not quite as ripped, or you know, Liver King, or whomever the next big influencer is. And th I think this is what's so important for us to set today. The good news of King Jesus is first a declaration followed by an invitation. This is what the good news is. And so I'm pulling here uh, verses 1 and 15, kind of from what we read. And I'm, this is the, the New Testament for everyone version. Um, because I like, again, when we read in slightly different versions, we get a fuller vision. And so this is the translation. This is where the good news starts. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah, God's Son. And then at the end, what Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. He said, God's kingdom is arriving. Turn back and believe the good news. When I ran a ministry school in Nashville at my former church, I had a student who still remains uh, one of my favorite students. We've, we've, we've kept in contact over the past 15 years, but he really came in with a chip on his shoulder. Like, show me. Like, go ahead, impress me, wow me. I've got it all together. And the, at one, of the, one of the first days we were sitting in class, and I said, can anybody sum up the gospel? And he said, uh, Jesus came to die for my sins so I can go to heaven. I said, no, that's not the gospel. And then I got his attention, just like I got many of yours, because you grew up hearing, this is the gospel. Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. And I said, this is not the gospel. And we turned to the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Mark, and we read this passage. This is where the good news starts. Or in the NIV, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. So here we are. First gospel, first chapter, first verse, and it's already saying this is the good news. It's not, here's the setup, here's some of the things, you, weird things you need to know about Jesus' life until we get to the good news, which is the cross. 
This is the good news. And the good news is not a function. The good news is a declaration. That's what makes it good news. It's not good advice. It's not good recommendations. It's not a really good program. It is good news. And so we need to start unpacking that right there in order to understand (coughs) what's really being uh, talked about. How did the first people engaging with Jesus understand what gospel means? So you say the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus, the Christ. Messiah, Christ, different languages, same word. It means anointed one, someone who has been anointed by God to take charge, to run the world, to be the king. This is what this means. So it's the good news about King Jesus. And if you lived in the first century and you read this little passage and it said the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, already all these alarm bells are going off in your head because those phrases had already been co-opted by the empire. Because Caesar had declared himself the Son of God. Caesar was the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. Um, Caesar was the Son of God. Whenever Caesar came into Uh, your nation, that was the good news, was the announcement, Caesar is here. So already at the beginning, what we are seeing is a political declaration that something is about to change. And another thing that we find that happens so often, if the gospel is just a formula determined to help me in the afterlife or just determined to help me live a little better life now, then we actually get to remove it from its material reality in the world, specifically within the political arena. If it's just about my personal salvation, well, then God doesn't really have an an opinion on politics. And what happens that we see in the political narrative is one part politics domesticate the image of Jesus to, to fund or to support a political party's machinations to say, oh, yes, absolutely, we're doing all these things like we talk about, like, one of, one of my big beefs is constantly in the West when we're like, we, we were founded on Judeo-Christian beliefs. And I'm like, which ones? What, which Judeo-Christian beliefs are you referring to? Because nobody can really seem to answer the question. We just take it for granted. We've domesticated the image of Jesus into our political narratives rather than recognizing that this was a form of new politics. When Jesus is called Messiah, the anointed one, the king, that is a political statement. When Jesus is called the Son of God, that is a political statement. When it's talked about the good news of the coming of Jesus, that is a political statement because what it was for the first century is Jesus is Lord and then whispered into that, and Caesar is not. That was, you know, Jesus didn't get murdered because he was just a nice guy telling people how to get their financial house in order. Jesus was murdered because he stood up against what we call the powers and the principalities of his day. And this is a dramatic shift from the me-centered gospel that many people grew up with, where the problem is me, and I need a solution to this problem so that I can get what I want out of Jesus, whether it's assurance for the afterlife or whether it's just to live a healthier, happier whole life today. It's very me-centric. And I think so many people in our generation have walked away from faith because religious institutions have trained them to ask the wrong questions of the gospel. If it's about self-fulfillment, 
if it's about being happy, if it's about getting to the afterlife, we we reduce Jesus to a function. Like Jesus is just um, a tool that we are meant to use to get what we want. And guess what? It never works out that way. If you want to be healthy and happy, don't become a Christian. Like, avoid things at all costs. Run away from suffering. Feel the indignation of having to deal with hard things in your life. If you want to be happy, don't become a Christian. And you you should feel a sense of indignation and rage that you have been sold a lie and that your friends and your family have walked away from Jesus, from God incarnate, from the human God, because they've been conditioned to ask the wrong questions, to make it about themselves, that Jesus is just a function or a tool that we are meant to use to get what it is that we want. The truth is that the good news is a declaration of of the coming of the kingdom. And it's followed by an invitation, which is that second part. We can throw that one, that slide up again. Jesus himself says, the time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is arriving. Turn back and believe the good news. So the good news is this declaration that everything is different now because God is on the move and the invitation comes. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? If everything's changing, and we talked about this, the kingdom of God is at hand. It means the new reality of what God is doing in the world is so close that you can reach out and you can touch it. And that that, that word repentance, to turn back or to change the way that you think about things, that's not telling you you're going to get what you want. That's telling you that everything that you think that you want in life is going to be dramatically shifted. Because Jesus is that invitation, come and follow me. It's like as, John, or, um, as Jonathan talked to us out of the Gospel of John a few weeks ago, when Jesus, they come to him, they say, Lord, where are you going? And he says, come and see. I'm not going to give you an answer. I'm going to tell you, come with me. Come with me and see where it is that we're headed. So the good news of King Jesus is a declaration of what God is doing in the world followed by an invitation. Are you going to follow him? Are you going to lay down everything, all of your assumptions about what makes the good life, about what it is that you want in order to come alongside of him and believe that his way is better? And so what we see through the gospel narratives, if it is truly good news, this is a declaration that God is on the move, we see Jesus taking on the powers and the principalities. And in one respect, those powers and principalities are human institutions. They're oppressive regimes run by Caesar, run by the religious elite, the political elite, or whatever it is, that seek to maintain a status quo in order to tamp down the masses, to keep them in despair, to keep them numb, to keep them in their place so that they can be exploited. And then what we see is Jesus challenging some of those very human structures in such a way that it gets him killed. This is not just about your personal salvation, although that's an important thing, that's part of it. But sometimes we can so co-opt the idea of personal salvation that we don't think about salvation for the whole world. Go, well, at the end of the day, it's just about me and me making sure that I have fire insurance. 
and we don't see the radical nature of what Jesus is doing when he's standing up against Caesar and saying, no, the empires of humanity, I'll go ahead and say mankind, because let's be honest, most of them are founded by men, um, they are going to come tumbling down. That is the, the political message of the gospel. But we're also going to see Jesus standing up against the powers and principalities, meaning the demonic forces of the Satan. And this happens a lot. Somebody actually told me um, there's a way of reading Mark as if it is a a suspense horror film. That Jesus is like the protagonist and he's like going through the story and there's like demons popping out at him left and white and then he's like conquering these demons. Like, and I'm, I'm in for it. Like I've got all the Stranger Things soundtrack on vinyl, so I'm putting those on, I'm listening to Mark. I'm like, this makes absolute sense. Um, so Jesus stands up against human institutions represented by Caesar, but he also stands up against demonic forces represented by the Satan. And that should make us feel uncomfortable because again, we are too smart in the West to believe that there are such things as demons. We've got it all explained away. No, 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 it's actually these uh, psychological criteria or whatever. Look at those, those idiots back in the you know, 2,000 years ago. They thought these things were real. Meanwhile, society's crumbling around us. And many of us feel like we're in a cloud. How many of us feel grossly isolated, even though theoretically we should be more connected than ever before because of the supposed advances in our society because we believe in the myth of progress? And then we slowly begin to wonder, huh, I wonder if there's something happening behind the scenes that maybe, just maybe, is guiding the way that I think, feel, and act. And not only that, I wonder if there are things in this world that we all collectively offer our attention, which is what we call worship, in a way that it embodies that thing and it seems to take on a life of its own and we worship that thing and it reigns over us and it controls us and it keeps us from engaging with the living God revealing Jesus. I Wonder. Perhaps. So we see Jesus, King Jesus, the human God, taking on the powers and the principalities, whether through Caesar or the Satan, and overcoming all of these things through sacrificial love. So what we see here in the first half chapter of Mark is kind of these three beats that were introduced to John the Baptist that we know from other texts is Jesus' cousin, But again, Mark is not interested in telling us these things. He wants to get right to the action. John baptizes people for repentance in the Jordan River. That the forgiveness of sins, their sins will be washed away. They will have a chance to turn back to God, which is great. He says that's absolutely part of it. He says, but Jesus is going to come and he is going to baptize by the Holy Spirit. And that that baptism of the Holy Spirit is for our transformation. So I baptize by, for repentance, for you to turn back to God, which is part and process of that response to the declaration that God is on the move. But he is going to baptize you in his Holy Spirit. And I was telling somebody earlier, like, to be good Trinitarians, what's really helpful to me is think of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Okay? It's not like God had two sons and there was Jesus and then there's the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus was here for like 33 years and then um, the Holy Spirit has been here for the past, like, whatever. It's like that, that video online where he goes, that's modalism, Patrick. Like, that's the heresy of modalism. Like, there's Yahweh, Jesus for 33 years, and now it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus continuing to work within us today. And so Jesus baptizes us in his Spirit, and it's this process of tr- transformation that we become more like him. But what we see when Jesus is baptized 
is that he is affirmed by his father before the work begins. That God looks upon Jesus and says, you're my son, and I already love you, and I'm already well pleased with you. And what I love about that story is that if we are in Jesus, that's the kind of thing that God says over us. He goes, you're my son, you're my daughter. In you, I'm already well pleased. Like there's nothing you can do to earn that. There's nothing that you can do to just really try hard and and make the grade and maybe someday you'll be in God's favor. He says from the beginning, no, if you are in Christ, if you are responding to this declaration that Jesus is what God has to say, um, then I am already well pleased with you. And so then everything we do, our motivations to enter into the kingdom, to manifest the kingdom through our work and our purpose becomes uh, a way of exploring the love that God has for each one of us. So then Jesus, immediately after that, it says the Spirit led him into the desert to be tempted by the Satan. We think how strange and how cool that is that the Spirit, again, as the jealous little brother maybe, is like, Jesus, you're going to go out in the desert and you're going to starve for 40 days and you're going to have to fight the devil. But what we see there is where we fail, Jesus succeeds. He's fulfilling the story of Israel and Israel, by extension, all of humanity. These questions that Jesus is tempted by in the desert. Will God protect you? Will God provide for you and will God empower you? And at each one of those moments, the Satan is challenging Jesus to take his authority. And this is, again, the very uh, nefarious way the Satan works. He knows the Bible better than you do. Uh, And one of the things I love that we're going to see time and again is like nobody knows who Jesus is except for the demons in Mark. And they're the ones that end up preaching the good news. Did you guys know that? They're like, we know who you are. And everybody else is like, who's this guy? And the demon's like, no, we know, we know who you are. This sucks. I don't want you to be who you are, but you are who you are. Um, so can we please, like, arrange something here? Like, the demons know better who Jesus is than we do. But Jesus goes out to be tempted by the Satan. He passes through those things. He continually says, no, my intimacy is with God. I do not test God in these ways. And he overcomes the evil in those places. And then Jesus goes out and he begins to preach. It's a very short sermon. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the way that you're thinking about everything because the new reality of God is so close that you can reach out and you can touch it. And Jesus begins to call on very ordinary people. The Jesus of action calls on ordinary people to take action in overcoming evil and in manifesting the kingdom and in doing so to find meaning and purpose to their lives. Jesus does not come to those first disciples, James, John, Philip, etc., etc., and say, hey, do you want to live a happy life? Hey, do you want to, like, get really rich? He didn't even say, hey, uh, have you been really worried about the afterlife and you need to make sure that you're going to get to heaven and not go to hell? He didn't say any of that to them. He say, come with me, follow me, and I'm going to give your life purpose. I'm going to give your life meaning. And in fact, you're going to be so like, con- convinced of the purpose that your life has that you are quite happy to suffer for it. That's the invitation. You will find so much joy in the purpose to which I've called you, to the things that I'm going to call you to do as you stand up against the powers and principalities, as you speak truth to power when it comes to Caesar and every empire that follows him, including the American empire, 
You are going to stand up against the demonic forces of this world that would seek to, to isolate people, to keep them powerless, to keep them removed from the beloved community. You are going to be called into that work, and when you do that kind of thing, even though it is very, very hard, you are going to be so fully realized in who you are that you begin to believe that this is good news. As my friend Allison constantly uh, reminds her three-year-old Rose, she hears her whispering it to her, so sometimes she goes, we can do hard things. We can do hard things. This invitation is not an invitation to comfort. It's certainly not an invitation to complacency. Because when our lives don't have purpose, our highest call, the, the, the most that we can expect for life is for happiness and comfort. That's all we're after if we don't have real purpose or meaning to our lives. But if we incline our ear to King Jesus to see what is it that he's promising us, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So we are the ones who King Jesus calls to follow him and to find purpose in his kingdom. When we begin to follow Jesus, when we say yes, when we repent, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, Jesus begins to overcome the evil that's inside all of us. Jesus begins to overcome the demonic influences. And we'll talk about all of this, and I know for some of you, like, ideas of the demonic are, are, are very scary, and that's okay. But we're going to talk about it. Jesus overcomes the evil inside all of us. It's like that quote that we've used several times before from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He says, the line between good and evil does not run between this country and that or this nation and that, but through the heart of every single human. But Jesus overcomes the evil inside of us. He delivers us from evil. So that word so-so, which means salvation, it means healing, but it also means deliverance. It means rescue. And we are rescued from the demonic influences. We are rescued from the things that we have already begun to worship because we think that they will give us a sense of meaning. He rescues us from that. He rescues us from the powers and principalities. We stop bowing to the elephant and the donkey and whatever political party comes up. And we stop bowing to flags. I come from a country where we have a lot of flags and we always know which tribe you're in because of how many flags you have flying out of your house and you hate people that have the other flag because heaven forbid a flag should have those colors on it, not these colors on it. And you support this football team, real football, not American football. Um, <laughs> like, oh, football. Um, those powers and principalities, Jesus begins to deliver us from our allegiance to lesser gods, to smaller kings who promise us the world, but in fact seek to manipulate us, to convince us to continually give them our pledge of allegiance. And when we follow Jesus, he gives us a new identity. This is my son, this is my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. He gives us purpose. Come, I'm going to send you out to fish for people. You're going to rescue other people. You are going to rescue people from evil and from darkness. You are going to rescue people from the powers and the principalities. You are going to learn how to speak to governments. You are going to learn how to stand up against the demonic forces that would seek to control this world, and you will overcome them. 
this purpose that your life actually matters. You don't have to be a cog in a wheel. You don't have to be powerless. In this year of us saying, be strong, take heart. The challenge that Jesus is giving to each one of us is come and follow me and see what happens. Because you're going to die. But in dying, you might actually live. I got the name for this series from a friend and mentor, Father Kenneth Tanner, who's a, an Episcopal priest up in Michigan. We've been talking about this for some time, but I came across um, sort of the epilogue that he just wrote to a wonderful book by Brad Jersak called Out of the Embers. Uh, it's about faith in the time of the Great Deconstruction. And I felt like it was worth sharing here. <clears throat> he says, as the human God in eternity, he does not abandon us when we express disappointment, anger, frustration, or despair does not ignore or sweep our injuries under the rug, but joins us in these wrestlings. And with patience, he gives himself to all of our pains, sorrows, and losses. We can trust ourselves and others with the human God. He is more beautiful and good than we have been told. He waits every morning and night of the world for our words and glances, sighs, and groans. He rejects nothing we bring to him, even the hard and inexpressible things. His love handles it all. And so to set off our time in this series, we see Jesus, the God, the human God of action. And so we take upon ourselves the actions that move us deeper into the kingdom. We call these things sacraments, sacred acts. And so we're going to celebrate together uh, Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, or the Lord's Table, or what would be called many different things by many different communities. But for us, we believe this is the place when Jesus says, come, like repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We believe, absurdly, this is the place where that happens. That when you and I come to the table, this is as close as we're able to ever get to an altar call anymore. I'm calling you to the altar. I'm calling you to respond. But there's something on the altar. It's this, it's, it's this living symbol of Christ, the King, who comes to triumph over the powers and the principalities. And we believe that as we eat of his body and drink of his blood, we are further inhabiting his kingdom. Something happens within us. Something mysterious happens on the inside of us as we come through these sacred acts that transforms us. And we find ourselves a little bit more inhabiting the kingdom of Jesus than the empires of the world than we did when we first walked into this room. And so I want to invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to invite um, some of our friends to come and to stand here. Uh, and they are going to uh, offer you communion, offer you uh, the sacred elements. After we're done praying, what's going to happen is starting in the front rows, you're going to come down, you're going to receive communion in that posture of being open to repent, and then you can go back to your seats and we'll move back the rows. And as we pray, there's a place for you to respond as well. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. 
It is right to praise you, Father, for all your goodness and your love. When we turned away, you did not reject us. In Christ, you shared our life that we might live in him and he in us. On the night before he died, he came to the table with his friends and taking bread, he gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of supper, taking the cup of wine, he gave you thanks and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Father, send your Holy Spirit on us now. May this bread and this wine be to us the body and blood of your dear Son. With your whole church throughout the world, we offer you the sacrifice of praise and lift our voice to join the song of heaven, forever praising you and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let's come to the table. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.